One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to a Snipper Nixon production. Welcome to Are You Feeling Funny? Where top comedians talk to a Harley Street doctor about their health and well-being. I'm Alan Nixon, and in today's edition, you'll be hearing guest comedian Stuart Lee as you've never heard him before. Then I went to the doctors about something, and they took a... I went, you don't fancy taking a blood pressure reading, do you? I feel a bit... And they did, and it was like, go to hospital now level. Stuart Lee will be in conversation with Harley Street specialist, Dr. Brian Kaplan, who has a passion for comedy. All comedians provide a service to people. Anyone that makes other people laugh, whether it's through a funny hat or dressing up or whatever it is, if it makes people laugh, it's having all those physiological benefits. Our guest, Stuart Lee, has been called the comedian's comedian for his ability to deconstruct his own act. Stuart emerged in the early 1990s as part of a double act with Richard Herring, making innovative radio and television series. Now with a prolific solo career, Stuart has written newspaper columns, a satirical novel and the controversial musical Jerry Springer the Opera. His highly praised BBC comedy series won a BAFTA in 2012. Now here's Dr Brian Kaplan in conversation with Stuart Lee. <laughs> Welcome to Are You Feeling Funny, well, thanks Stuart Lee. Thank you. So let's start off with just any physical stuff, any interaction with hospitals, doctors. Oh, loads. Yeah, loads. And, I mean, well, the earliest I can remember is uh, I was in, um, I was on a caravan holiday in the, in South Devon when I was about five years old with my grandparents, and I I was blowing bubbles on the step of the caravan and I slipped on the soap, of soapy water, and I fractured my left arm, and I had to spend six weeks in the hospital in Exeter and my grandparents had this incredibly long extended caravan holiday where they stayed but the weird thing about that was I was right handed and I was left handed and I was just learning to to write and because I sort of couldn't get my arm going again afterwards for ages I just changed to being right handed which apparently is really bad for you isn't it and you've been a right handed ever since since. but the initial time that I pick up anything like a cricket bat or a guitar I'd go to do it in a left handed way and then I've not really practiced enough with my left hand during my life, so I change it back. Yes, and I understand that sort of makes you go mad on some level to spend your whole life doing things, what is essentially forced. backwards for you. So that was a good start, I think. To help. But it's a good start genetically. Left-handed people are statistically more likely to be creative. Yeah, well, I am, yeah. I am left-handed, yeah. but I don't use my left hand, which is why I've got my watch on my right hand, uh-huh. even though people think it's a weird affectation. Actually, I started wearing it on that hand, so I don't know whether I'm... Coming or going, I can't catch a ball or anything. I can't do any sport that involves trying to receive 
a ball being thrown at you, I just drop it instantly. And I think it's because my coordination has oh, been yeah. skewed ever since that. Because yeah. I mean, I've yeah. found a lot of things. I look back on them. about about seven, about five years ago. I met my real father for the first time. I'd never met before. But I'm not going into that long story. Anyway, mm-hmm. my wife had been complaining that I was deaf and I was going deaf and it was annoying to live with me because I was deaf. And I knew I was a bit deaf, but I didn't think it was of a you know, clinically problematic level. Mm-hmm. And then the first thing I said to my father when he came in the room was, oh, you've got a hearing aid. And the first thing he said to me was, everyone in your family goes deaf and so will you. <laughs> so I How went old for were a, you then? I was about, this is about five years ago, five so years I was ago, 44. Yeah. So I went for a... I went for it's probably about about seven years ago. Probably I went I went for a, a test, an HS test, and they said, "Yeah, you need hearing aids." Then I started wearing them on stage, which was amazing because I could hear so much of what was happening in a room. Right, and I for for about ten years previously, I'd started to sort of develop this thing where I liked to imagine that the gig wasn't going as well as I thought it was. And I used to complain about the audience not getting things. And I'd be often particularly annoyed with a group of people just to my left in the middle, about halfway through the theatre. And, and, and I found that this was, that was a weaker point exactly on my left side. Yeah, so actually, part of, the, part of the persona that served me really well, because it's a sort of passive-aggressive thing where the audience can never beat you because you get in first, complaining that they're not up to your standard. But part of it, I think, developed out of um, genuinely not being able to hear a room. Particularly, I remember going to one theatre in Melbourne in Australia in the mid-90s and then going back there 10 years later and thinking, God, I used to go really well in this room. What's happened to me? I must have got terrible. <laughs> but it was, it, that was the only point when I had a 10-year comparison between two rooms because normally you go back to the same places so your hearing loss is incremental. That's really you funny. Know, now, but now what's great about it is I can hear everything. <laughs> I mean, I can hear... I, can hear, yeah. I feel like, like a wild animal. I can hear individual people talking. I can hear like stuff in the street outside so it's actually like a hyper state of consciousness now i mean i feel like i'm on hallucinogenic drugs when i go on stage with hearing aids on it's great as well because you can if someone's heckling you right you don't have to um come back fast that was always the thing when me and arnold's you know in the 80s that audiences i said when me and arnold started arnold brown's in the room who's of course actually started he invented it when i came in 10 years later but he um the audiences then you were very it was very combative and you were expected to be able to sort of deal with people in the instant yeah and um i always like to try and slow the heckle down and treat it as a genuine inquiry but one of the great things about hearing hearing is you can take them out and you can go sorry i'm deaf there are two settings on these and i've got them set for the further distance and you're in the wrong area so I'll just do this right and then you can ask it again and basically the sort of ill-considered thing that they said in the moment then has to be subjected to a long analysis you know and uh if they go so then and and you've changed the pace of the way the heckle happens and you can make it into a long and use it a few times that bring it up there's loads of things you can you can do with it I find it really um I find it really good I mean obviously if I was profoundly deaf it would be much more difficult. There are comics that are, you know, Steve Day, for example, mm-hmm. is profoundly deaf. But, um, but I'm deaf enough for it to be an advantage, I think, because the technology makes me feel like Superman doing a gig where I can hear <laughs> everything that's happening. And then the, and, but also it's just, you're just technically disabled enough mm-hmm. to be able to alter the power structure in any sort of... Yeah, but it's wonderfully life-affirming to hear you 
convert something which could have been a slight disability actually into into its advantages and well, it you has know what? some I, advantages. Yeah, but I think that's I think that's true of lots of different areas of arts of which stand up is the lowest. But I think that <laughs> lo- lots of things that look like problems, mm-hmm. if you just meet them head on, all they've done is changed the, the territory. And you get this a lot with. I mean, I I always tell this story, and it was a real road to Damascus notion for me watching. Um, Derek Bailey, who's he's dead now, but he was one of the people that started sort of what they call, you know, free jazz, European improvisation, sort of no tunes, what's going to happen next kind of music in the 60s. And I saw him about 25 years ago at the Royal Festival Hall, and he was lost in a sort of reverie, wandering around with his guitar, looking at the floor. And he wasn't, he, he walked into the back wall of the venue by accident, and it sort of went clang, and all the sort of people that go to the Royal Festival Hall went, oh, and stiffened and thought, this is a bit awkward. He's walked into a wall and made a noise he didn't intend to. So what he did was step back and did it again and then created this resonance that he played off. Another thing I saw Evan Parker, a jazz saxophonist in the same vein, they always put the really good people on at the Cheltenham Jazz Festival in the tiny rooms because they don't really want jazz on. They want Jules Holland to do a big band thing. So he was in a little theatre with a leaking roof. And the roof started leaking while him and a trumpeter from America, Peter Evans, were on. And the stagehand came on and put a bucket on the stage. And the drips were going in the bucket, <laughs> rhythmically. <laughs> and they started playing for the rest of the night. They played around the drips of the bucket. <laughs> right? Now, rather than throwing rhythm. a strop and going, I've come from America to do this. And you've so put a tin resonant bucket on. They just went with it. And so I think any, any problem, you can normally, if you embrace it, you can normally get something out of it. I think you need to know your own act well enough. You need to know mm. what your character is and what your character would do with that thing. And also, you need to not have another show coming in on the back of you at 9.30 in the Leicester Square Theatre because you can't <laughs> afford But if it, but you can't afford to take the time to do it. So tell me, with this um, hearing or any other physical problem you've dealt with, tell me what the, the interaction with doctors or health professionals, how have you found those people? Well, I don't like yeah. it now since yeah. I became an F-list recognisable face. Mm-hmm. You know, In fact, one of the first times that was, that was awkward was about 10 years ago. Well, I've had um, I've had sort of ongoing stomach problems since about the age of 16 that have been diagnosed as a variety of things from ulcerative colitis mm. to diverticulitis, and I suspect the diverticulitis is probably a more serious... I don't think it was that bad, actually. I think something else had gone wrong. But anyway, about the time that happened, uh, I was sent in to the Whittington Hospital for a colonoscopy, uh, which, as you'll know, doctor, is the procedure whereby... A viewing mm. tube is put up your yeah, anus. Yeah, want to look inside. Yeah, and during that, the doctor in charge said to me, oh, I see from your notes you're a famous comedian. And I said, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not, otherwise you'd have heard of me or something. And then the nurse said, well, I've never heard of you. And I was, li- I could literally see the screen with my own, you know, <laughs> internal organs up ahead of me, where yeah. they were, like, debating as to whether I... She's going, where have you... Where did you before? I've never heard of you. So it was doubly... It was humiliating anyway. And then the added humiliation was that they didn't know I was supposed to be famous, and they didn't know I was. And I found that, you know, that... What I would laugh about it. I ended up writing a, a bit about that, which Ricky Gervais subsequently copied off me, having seen the show. <laughs> but I but I don't know if he genuinely even had a colonoscopy, but he pretended to have done after seeing me do a bit about it. But, the, but it was... Um, I did get a bit out of it, but it is it is awkward, you know. I, and because you know, and it's happened. It happened since I got I got bitten by loads of flies on the towpath in uh, around uh, Regent's Park, and I got cellulitis, and I had to go in the hospital and be put on a drip. And 
the doctor came in and went, oh, it's you, as I was lying there with all my swollen, infected legs. It's like, it is, it is difficult, that. You know, you don't, you don't, and I don't, I've not gone outside the system yet. But the point is, at the end of all that, I, I was 37 mm-hmm. or whatever. I got, I was in debt. I got no, nothing I'd done had worked out. And then I got this, then I was in hospital with this diverticulitis mm. attack. And um, uh, I hadn't known what it was. And I'd collapsed on stage in a run at the, uh, well, off stage, in, in a run at the Soho Theatre. And that week I was in hospital, I sort of thought, God, you know, I, there are people in this room that are dying. There was a guy who was clearly in there. He was just mad and couldn't look after himself. Mm-hmm. And whatever had happened to him, was going to happen again. He was. He spent all week walking around in leopard skin underpants and a leather jacket with a picture of the wolf on a, on the back, showing you the sores on his body. And I, and I, I, I it was a very, it was very um, edifying the whole week. And, and after that, I thought, right, I've got to leave my management. I've got to work out what I'm doing in my personal life. I've got to strip everything back so that I can do it all myself and have a web presence and book my own gigs and not have a promoter and not use PR. And I suddenly thought you only get one life and you need to try and make it work. And, and that gave, process, the initiation of that process yeah, happened that while week, you were yeah, in the hospital. I sort of yes. gave up on the idea of trying to be a success or anything. And I just thought I need to be able to do what I do. But there's without. that quality about what, the, I think it's a wonderful quality is if you don't really care if certain people don't like you or whatever it's yeah. as if you don't well it's it, it's not it, in a way that was just economic necessity you know i worked out that, that it sounds funny to talk about it now but my space you know the internet was taken off and my space had been invented which was a proto facebook and um john hegley said to me oh, it's not a big deal this he said you only need about you know a thousand people to like you and if they all give you 20 quid a year you're fine I mm-hmm. thought yeah that's all this other stuff is just pie in the sky and then on MySpace you could have a f- picture of your face and people signed up if they liked you and then I started MySpacing everyone as I was doing these tours of 100 seats of venues around the country and gradually they started to fill up and I thought right it's just that's all it is everything else is sort of irrelevant really and weirdly since I sort of did that bizarrely I've become very you know, much more successful. If I was Jim Carrey or Noel Edmonds, I'd tell you that I'd asked the universe to um, to, to, to sort me out. But actually, it was just I thought, well, I'm never going to convince all those other people. It's anyway. called cosmic ordering. When yeah, you it wasn't cosmic audit. ordering. It was like, <laughs> how am I going to make this rent? This month? how am I going to hit this? So you yeah, know, just stripped do- it back to basics. You're listening to Are You Feeling Funny? I'm Luke Nixon. We love making the show, so if you love it too, please comment, rate, or subscribe on your podcast provider. Just sharing a link goes a long way. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's stay with that psychological, so moving yeah. on to psychological, because you're talking about a psychological watershed in your life. Yeah, that, yeah, and you yeah. change everything, or, and it or felt maybe right. maybe a mental yeah. breakdown, actually, and, and in retrospect, around that six-month period. I never really thought of it before, but... Uh, when I look back on it, I think, well, it yeah. can be a, you know Ronnie Lang of RD, well, known yeah, yeah. as RD Lang. He would say that this sort of some people break down in order to break through, and some people just break down and, yeah. and get into an awful state. Um, did you have any contact with psychologists or psychotherapists or coaches or group work or anything like that with the psychological element? No, I mean element? I once went to a hypnotist to, yeah. to try and quit smoking mm-hmm. and drinking. I managed one of them, but um, the but. Uh, no, I didn't. And like a lot of comics, you you worry that if you sort something out, you might upset the engine that is what's driving you. Like, I mean, I know that a lot of my humour, I mean, I'm kind of on top of it personally now, but I know that a lot of my humour has come from a number of things. First of all, I don't think that I... I it's imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. right? I, my life's been a succession of lucky breaks. I was adopted by a nice family out of a out of a... You know, a care home, and and I I I, uh, I got a a scholarship. I got a part scholarship to a boys' ex grammar you know, private school when I was eleven, and then they still couldn't have afforded it. But the rest of the fees, well, my mum found I was my mum found I was eligible to, for some grant for orphans, waifs, and strays, people that had you know, and I, and I, I so I got through on that. Then I got a place in Oxford, which I wouldn't have got now. Because the rules, the you can't do a specialised subject, and I was only good at one thing. Then, I, then what was that? Was English really? Uh-huh. Then, yeah. then, um, then even the Fringe. You know, going to the Fringe. The first time I went to the Fringe in 1987, and I saw Arnold, for example, Arnold Brown on the bill with Joey Sadovitz and Arthur Smith and Norman Lovett, which was a real life-changing thing. I, 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 I wouldn't have gone to university now with the debt, and also the money isn't there. For students to go cheaply to the fringe, and it's much more expensive to do it. Everything just feels like a fluke all the way through, like like just running over burning bridges as they collapse behind you. So I, I know there's a degree of that that drives the sort of the, the character is arrogant on stage because he worries he's going to be found out. Right? There's a, there's also a, a degree of bitterness that he feels that some um, other people are being. Uh, favoured above him and there's some kind of prejudice against him it doesn't make sense anymore that because um, I've done very well but I know it's still in there so I'm aware of these mm, things really he's got an anxious he's got he's got a, he's got the sort of um, he's got the sort of uh, desire to prove that he's clever that people only have if they're worried that they're not and I, I found myself doing this yesterday I was at my kids school Christmas party and one of, and most of the people there in that school because of the catch, you know, whatever they're, a lot of professional types, the mums, certainly the ones that are at the party, one of them said something about Morris dancing, and I started going on about 
Uh, it was derived from Moorish dancing and had been mm-hmm. brought back from the Crusades. And of course, Cecil Sharp House is around the corner where it was rediscovered. But there's an anxiety about whether that's actually a middle class imposition on a working class folk art. I thought, <laughs> why am I saying all this stuff? That, and it's because I think I, I want yeah. to sort of know that I know things. So I'm, I'm, but you worry if you went for analysis, you'd stop doing it. And then, like Adam Bloom, for example, he's yeah. a great comic, but he won't. He told me about 20 years ago, he'd only read one book ever, and that mm-hmm. was a book of scripts by Woody Allen. Yeah. Right? And he didn't want to read any other books because he was worried that if he started reading and knowing things, he wouldn't be able to sort of be the actor. It's he funny is. that you say yeah. Woody Allen because he is the one that makes a big show of his yeah. long journey into trying to understanding. Yeah. Not that it's, he admits that it did him any good whatsoever. You know? I don't think it has, yeah. is it? No. <laughs> no. I, think he, in, I think it was in Annie Hall that he admits. 13 years of psychoanalysis and Diane Keaton says to him 13 years that's a long time he said I'm giving it one more year then I'm going to Lourdes <laughs> yeah, yeah, suggests yeah, yeah. it hasn't worked you know <laughs> I mean I've got a great thing literally happening at the moment where I've worked out I was, I was lost a bit of weight since the start of the tour and one night my trousers just fell down at a really good point <laughs> which is not the sort of thing I would do I don't do like the clowning yeah, <laughs> but it was really funny because I just carried on with the bit which was yeah. quite high status complaining about young people with your trousers and your ankles my ankles and I thought wow I wonder if you could make that happen and I worked out if I've got this one pair of jeans if I just nudged them down a bit at the back and then just like just kick my hips they go like bang and I can time it every night where I want it to happen and it's uh, but if I lose any more weight then it's like magic trousers You, you know you couldn't you couldn't plan it I, you know, they're not. They've not got a special button in them. They're just the trousers that where they, where they hang. So there's there's optimum sort of physical things as well. So know? how did you find the hypnotist? This interaction or the hypnotherapist? Perhaps? How did I f- yeah. f- find that? Well, no, find yeah. it in terms of the experience. Uh, well, it was it was really good. I felt. I mean, um, it worked for about. I never went back to smoking. Mm-hmm. I started drinking again after a couple of months, but the immediate aftermath of it was um, was. Uh, just like a switch had been thrown. It's quite a powerful effect, yeah. 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 Um, and I, uh, to be honest, I'd sort of go anyway. I quite, if I had time, I like the idea of um, just being, uh, I like being shut down. It was quite interesting. I think you see that shutting down, that's what a hypnotist or a hypnotherapist does, is try to get you to be in a slight trance. It doesn't yeah. mean that you're oblivious to reality yeah. and unconscious. You're just in a slight trance. I personally think that jokes and humor do that as well that people are sort of thrown by the the punchline or the reversal of a process in a good gig i think um a sense of hysteria happens which is sort Mm. of beyond reason and um and you can do it with rhythms and pitch as much as words and uh all the how to be a comedian courses are always about words and reverses of expectation and how things fit together but I think there's some snake charming thing going on as well on a good on a good gig about pitch and rhythm and um, tone and, and sometimes you yeah. for all comedians there's that moment where there just isn't the resonance yeah, yeah. yeah. and you know I, 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 you know I have this idea that you get to a point where it wasn't really about the content and it was just about the sort of shapes of the language and sounds and I, but I think you you can do that with, you can do that with you know, experimental poetry like J. H. Prynne or something. But I don't know if you can, I don't know if you can really get to it with stand up. I suppose, you know, Reeves and Mortimer get close to that often, where the words don't really matter, and Noel Fielding does a bit. But, um, I don't know. 
You're listening to Are You Feeling Funny? I'm Olivia Nixon. We love making this show, so if you love it too, please comment, rate or subscribe on your podcast provider. Just sharing a link goes a long way. Let's move on to the spirit side of body, mind and spirit. And I won't ask you if you believe in God because I know you're a member of the, is it the Secular Society and yeah. associate of the British Humanist yeah, Society, yeah. but interactions with God or God people? Well, I, um, I don't think being a member of those, um, bizarrely, this sounds like a real fudge, but I don't think being a member of the National Sex Society or the British Humanist Association necessarily precludes a belief in God. I uh-huh. think what they're mainly about is um, they're mainly about the unfairness of religious privilege or they're a watchdog for when legislation or education or whatever is controlled or led by religious pressure groups. And I right. think it would be quite possible to be uh, a religious person and to support, and support a humanist. Yes. You know, I know people think that's mad, but it actually seems to me to be... I have been criticised recently of... Someone, another stand-up went on Twitter and said he was sick of my nuanced pontificating. So I'm sorry if that's nuanced pontificating, but I think that is, I think that is tr- a true position. In the same way as I could imagine yeah. that, you know, I can imagine people feeling there was a, a socially cohesive value in, a, in attending a religious service without believing in, yes. in God. So a lot of people would accept that, so I can't see why the reverse... A lot of vicars. I know someone of the vicar in northwest London that that uh, know, a friend well. of mine said to him, but we don't believe in God. He said, that's no reason why you shouldn't be welcome. <laughs> well, there. you know, is it uh, confidentially, a number of reasonably significant religious figures have, have admitted to me they don't believe in God. They've got a nice house out of it. You know, they've got to keep it. But yeah, I, well, I was, I, um, I wasn't, when I was a kid, I was my best friend around the corner. It was called Nigel and he was in a church choir and he seemed to like it. So I joined a church choir. Church of England. Church oh, yeah, yeah, I was yeah. baptised Church of England as a kid because I was adopted through the Church of England mm-hmm. Children's Society. So uh, I was in that system. And um, uh, they're called the Children's Society now, weirdly. Maybe the... the anyway, but the... Um, but the So I went to... I went. I joined a church choir and I... I um, went to church. You know, I sang in three services a week. And so by the age of 11, I knew the, the liturgy absolutely inside yeah. out and I'd heard three sermons a day that ranged from genius to banal and I, I knew the mechanics of that religion inside out I knew that it was hypocritical and corrupt I, because there was you know covers ups of abuse and things like that as there are in most religious institutions but I also knew that it was um, that it was ennobling in lots of ways I think it was a great a great start for studying literature later and for thinking about how to perform. Stand know. up. They're, yeah, they're, they're holding an the, audience. You know, yes. Some of those priests were terrible. And one of the things they obviously need to do, the Catholic Church is even worse than the Church of England. I go to that sometimes now because my wife's Catholic. Mm-hmm. They don't know how to use PAs. They, thought, they need, you know, they could do with going on some stand-up course <laughs> run by Logan Murray in a, in a pub, honestly, because yeah. they haven't got the first idea about how yeah. to do it. And some of them are really good. So you get a lot of ideas from that. I think that it's unfair that there's um, religious privilege. I don't like to see legislation for things driven by a religious agenda. Um, I I don't even really know if faith schools is a good thing, even despite having had experience of them. I mean, that's the interesting thing, again, about comedy, is if it's funny enough, your moral sense shuts down and you'll laugh at things 
despite not agreeing with them. You know, and that and that you, you, you're, the pleasure at the rhythm of it or the shock of it mm. kicks in. But you get into that; it's a, a mind field. Because this is the feeling people. I'm getting from this talk is there's objectivity and subjectivity, and it seems you're very aware of that. It's uh, many things that happen to you objectively are really tough in your life, but you seem to be saying well, everything can be reframed subjectively well, the all, way we look at life. Every my all the advantages I've had and the privileges I've had were as a result of problems that I had where there was some compensatory action. But it was yeah. the result, not only of the problems, it was the way you subjectively looked at the problem and tried to change or do something important with it or learn well, something from it or... I don't know if I could do that as easily now because before, when, before I had children or owned a house, there was nothing at stake and I could throw things away and sabotage mm. them and it would be entirely on my own on my own um, head, you know, whereas now it would be harder to, to suddenly make a make a radical change to something because you're dragging these innocent people in your wake who expect you to look after them <laughs> yeah. you know so it's uh, it's is more difficult but and I so did god I, exist in your family a bit then through your wife i don't know my my um my gran well, i was brought up by my mum basically and her parents my um my mum went to church i don't know if belief was something she gave a lot of thought to but she did my gran went to church but told me there was no afterlife and when you were dead you were dead mm-hmm. i don't even really know if faith schools is a good thing even despite having had experience of them um so basically you're yeah. saying you favor complete separation of yeah, church and so, state yeah. but my, my position is yes. mainly a political and and, and a um and uh you know it's mainly a political one and I, but, and I, but and I reckon i would i would maintain that position even if I did believe in God, my wife finds it funny that I've I've had, I've seen ghosts on three occasions, yeah. and yet I um I instantly dismissed them as manifestations of some anxiety that I had, or as a sudden sort of flash of mental instability, even though they were all very vivid. Her husband was my grandfather. It's a very hard thing to explain to people. He was uh, he was he was religious in as much as he was a Freemason, but he yes. wasn't a Freemason who was a judge or a or a Harley Street uh, consultant. Yeah. He was he was a working class guy from Birmingham, and they would meet up in rooms above pubs, and the ones that were builders would go, do you need a load of bricks? We've got some left up. You know, it was very, it's a different strand of it. But they, it was them that helped me out with them. That's where I got my charity bung for school from. So he not only believed in God, he believed that God was a architect with a divine plan. But I remember when he was mm-hmm. dying, he was... Uh, I was looking after him when he was done. My mum was away. I was about nine, I was about twenty-one, and he was on a lot of morphine. And he started sort of hallucinating various things. And he got very concerned one night, about three days before he died, that um, that there were lots of there were lots of Muslims suddenly in Birmingham, and he knew them. And how could they? They thought they were right, didn't they? They thought their religion was right. And I went, yeah. And he went, but I think mine's right. And I went, yeah, you do. And he went, well, what if mine's wrong and theirs is right? What will happen to me? Of course, what I wanted to say was, well, you've you know you've realised that they can't all be right, and you can't. There's obviously no objective. Mm-hmm. They're they're cultural things. They're not. But I I said something like, well, I think that you know whatever you believe is the thing that uh, that happens. But I mean, he had that sort of panic that a religious person has. I think in the closing moments that they suddenly think about the other ones. I mean, look, it used to, it was it was unfathomable to me when I met my wife, who was. Going to church Catholic, I um, I was all the things that I was annoyed about with religion had really taken a very 
sharp focus because I'd essentially been bankrupted and had my five years work closed down by religious pressure groups mm. and um, I had to cross picket lines of people saying I was going to hell you know and um, and it's actually quite interesting to to meet and fall in love with a, a, a religious person at that point because you have to work you have to come to some accommodation without without and that was the point. Yeah, yeah it was about 2005. And we did it, which is why I think, oh, what's going on in Palestine? Why can't they sort it out? Because <laughs> we did. <laughs> we did. What's their problem? We sorted out a much worse thing. So, you know, you do, it was interesting. It made me less of an absolutist about these things, you know. So I'll probably go to church at, at Christmas at some point with a, in a begrudging way. Okay, yeah. last couple of questions. Do you have any... Health regimen that you use oh, to stay well. Yes. What things that are wrong with me? No, or something you do that you say. I no, I don't. This it's actually it's appalling, right? And I, 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 you know, there was there was a point, 15, 10, 15 years ago, mm. I used to run round Regent's Park here all the way about three times a week. Um, I've just you know I've, the, th the thing is now, if I'm half the year I'm in London, I do gigs every night. I get in about eleven. I don't go to sleep till about one. If I don't drink half a bottle of wine, I'm awake. If I do, I go to sleep more quickly, but I've drunk half a bottle of wine and probably eaten some nuts and mm -hmm. toast. Uh, I do I do that all the time. I About a year and a half ago, <laughs> well, it was actually three days after Brexit last year, I did, a, did a, the first go of my new show in a big tent in Bristol. I tried to rewrite loads of it so it was about politics. I got away with it. There was an atmosphere, a mass, atmosphere of hysteria in the room. It was amazing. Yeah. I went back to the hotel. Josie Long was there. He's a very political, very clever young woman. I sat up talking to her ages about where we were at politically, drinking a lot. Then in the morning I had to get up about four to get back for my kids' um, school concert. I got back for that. Then I went to the doctors about something, and they took a... I went, you don't fancy taking a blood pressure reading, do you? I feel a bit... And they did, and it was like, go to hospital now, Neville. <laughs> Do not pass go. Yeah, and they went, you know, you're supposed, I'm supposed to send you to hospital, but go home. I said, I only had about three hours sleep. I come from Bristol, and I'm really annoyed about Brexit, right? And I was, I was furious about it. I find it funny. It put me in a real mad state. So I th anyway, then it's, I've been on this medication. Then last summer, I did stop doing gigs for three months, and I went for a checkup in the middle of it. And I was the same weight and everything, but it was gone normal. So I know that there's a... A correlation between the mind affects yeah. the body. Well, yeah, that's good and so to you know, I, I, I'm going to stop in April for about a year and um, stop what? Stop doing stand up for oh, about no. a year and yeah. try and um, try and go running and do stuff and and try and work out. You know, try and work out experimentally at, at what level does it does it is it is it destructive? I mean, the, the thing is, you know, it's blowing your own trumpet, but n there's no no one in the last. T decade but there's no one in this country since I started who does as many long shows in mm. a year as I do when I do mm. I'll do in the, this year I would have done 200 two two and a half hour shows I right fantastic and it's, and it's partly because people that get to that level they normally end up doing 4,000 seaters or 12,000 seaters but I prefer to do it in smaller things I, I want the shows to be as good as they can or so you can keep the prices down but I know I can't do that again. Stuart Lee, it's been fabulous to have you. Thank you oh, so much for sharing this side of yourself with us. Thanks so, a lot. Are You Feeling Funny? Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks. You've been listening to Are You Feeling Funny, a Snipper Nixon production. In this episode, Dr. Brian Kaplan was talking to comedian Stuart Lee. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, please comment, rate or subscribe on your podcast provider. Just sharing a link goes a long way. Are You Feeling Funny featured Dr. Brian Kaplan. The comedy consultant was Arnold Brown. Music and sound by Alex Hollingsworth. The producers were Luke and Alan Nixon. And this was a Snipper Nixon production. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.